one thing looking at a fish or an animal, you know, behind a glass in an aquarium or zoo, but I was literally, you know, leaning over the side of the boat, looking at this six foot long sailfish, like absolutely beautiful. You could see the coloration on it and like how it was sparkling in the water. You could see the mucus that was on the fish, you know, that helped it swim faster through the water. And like, it, it was that moment that like sparked it in me, just looking at that fish and having that fish look at me with its large eye. Like it, I was just like, oh, wow, like this is what I want to do. Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Mad St. Clair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists. Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science. From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas, we'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications and smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Hey everyone, happy Monday and welcome back to another episode of the Women in Ocean Science podcast. Now something we love about this podcast is the diverse range of women that we've had on to talk about their research. And today it's a first for us because we're welcoming an undergraduate student to come and talk about the paper that she wrote. Meredith Pratt is an undergraduate fisheries research student at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. And Meredith has had the opportunity to do her own research on sailfish and sea surface temperatures. She's here today to discuss her paper titled Atlantic Sailfish Distribution Off the East Coast of Florida from 2003 to 2018 in response to sea surface temperature. Hey Meredith, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm great. Good. That's always good to hear. And whereabouts are you in the world at the Mo? I'm in Florida, actually, in the States. Ooh, the Sunshine State. Yeah, but right now, actually, it's quite rainy. No way. We've nicked the sunshine because it is very sunny here yeah. right now. I was just about to say, I've, I've actually got my curtain shut for the recording, but it's so sunny outside in the UK right now that the sun is like blaring through the curtain which is a which is a rarity I'll tell you that <laughs> definitely is but yeah so we are here today with Meredith to talk through her recent paper which is on Atlantic sailfish uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce the latin name <laughs> um distribution off the east coast of florida from 2003 to 2018 in response to sea surface temperatures and Meredith, one of the things that I love the most about reading this paper as well is that you are actually an undergraduate fisheries research student, Yes, which I think you could possibly be the first undergraduate that we've had on the podcast to have already written a paper. So that oh, was wow. super impressive and congratulations for that. Thank you. Yes, Thank you congratulations. So and we do usually ask people to give us a quick um, summary of their paper first, but before we ask that today, I'd actually love to ask a little bit more about you and how how did you end up writing a paper so so early on? Yeah, sure thing. 
So I wasn't planning on, you know, doing research like that. I, I mean, it was just kind of coincidental. I actually applied for an internship my sophomore year um, during undergrad, and I got the internship. I was very surprised that I got this internship um, with the organization called the Bill Fish Foundation. Um, and like part of this internship was I could use their data on billfish, such as sailfish, for a research project. So essentially, my whole internship was doing a whole scientific research project with the data they collected. And wow. the data they collect basically is just different tag data from different species of billfish, such as sailfish. And they actually get this data from recreational fishermen. Um, or fisher, fisher woman, fishers. Um, <laughs> and so it's people going out and catching these fish for sport because billfish and sailfish and marlin, they're all typically fish that you catch for sport. So these people that catch these fish then tag them with little spaghetti tags. And then if the fish are caught again, we can take down that data and essentially see their movement patterns um, over time. So that's how I got the data for this project um, and how it kind of evolved. <laughs> That's so cool. And yeah, you know, we've said congratulations already, but publishing research is hard. And so to have mm -hmm. done this in your undergraduate is just so impressive. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I totally second that. It was, yeah, it was really, really nice to to see that come up, um, especially as we're trying to celebrate women from right across the board. Um, so it's brilliant to have someone come on such as yourself, who is a uh, very, very early career. So yeah, super excited. Um, you've just mentioned kind of a little bit about what you were doing, but could you give our podcast listeners a quick kind of abstract-like summary of your, of your paper? So I specifically did my paper on the Atlantic sailfish. And these fish can be found in the Atlantic Ocean um, from their name. Um, <laughs> the fish that we used for, um, in this paper, they were all off the coast of Florida, the east coast of Florida. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, these fish, the data from these fish were, you know, taken from recreational uh, fishers. And so I had the data for these fish, but I needed to do something, you know, with it. So I decide climate change is, you know, something really relevant in this day and age. And it's something mm. that really interested me. So I decided to link the movement patterns of the fish, which we already had with the sea surface temperature. Um, so I got the sea surface temperature information um, from a NOAA program that you can find online. And I basically linked each sailfish location with a temperature value. So I basically, the purpose of the study was to see if the sea surface temperature had any effect with where the sailfish were. So what I found was that sailfish on average were caught at around 26 degrees Celsius over the 15 year period from 2003 to 2018. Um, I had a lot of data um, in this study. And I thought a 15 year period was a pretty good, you know, it was mm. pretty good to look at to see if there's any changes over time. So the most sailfish catches were at around 25 degrees Celsius. And then in regard to just different temperatures over this 15 year period, it was found that at lower temperatures, such as 23 and 24 degrees Celsius, that there were actually a decreased number of sailfish catches. But at higher temperatures, such as 26 degrees up to 29 degrees Celsius, there was actually an increase in the number of sailfish caught. Hmm. So based on these results, it just kind of makes sense that because the ocean temperatures are slowly rising over time, that this will have an impact on the distribution and habitat utilization of these sailfish. So there definitely needs to be more research in regard to this. To this. 
with sailfish and really fish in general, because climate change really will affect where these fish are going and where they are moving for different reasons. So that's essentially the little summary of my research with this. Wow. I think a lot of people, when they think of the ocean, they don't really think about the fundamental role that temperature actually plays in sort of dictating where you Mm -hmm. find a species. And, you know, life in our oceans is being displaced. I think it's something like 10 times faster than life on land because of what you've said, these rising temperatures. Mm -hmm. But what it seems to me kind of, you know, sailfish are usually found in colder latitudes. But what you're actually finding was that there were more sailfish being caught at higher temperatures. So could this actually expand their their kind of you know the normal areas that you would find them mm-hmm. in um or do you think it could limit them right um i think it could expand you know their range they do have a pretty broad range to begin with um i mean they are found in like the tropical latitudes mm-hmm. um and you know up to the temperate latitudes but it they definitely could expand more i'd say up in the temperate latitudes more since you know the waters are becoming warmer yeah um Something else like that I find interesting is if they're being caught at these higher temperatures, we're thinking, okay, they must be moving to these warmer temperatures. But then again, there's also the idea that, well, at these higher temperatures, these fish could almost be more vulnerable. They may be, you know, exposed to, to fishing more because mm-hmm. it's not their ideal temperature. Um, so essentially, they're being displaced. And it's kind of like a negative impact that they're being caught more at these higher temperatures. Um, So that's something else that definitely needs to be looked in more with like, let's say with satellite tags where we can see their direct movements um, to see if they're moving to these regions, you know, for food resources or migration or, you know, mating. It's kind of still a question on why are they moving, you know, to these areas or are they just more vulnerable at higher temperatures of being caught? Mm, Now that's, that's really interesting. And Something else that struck me as rather interesting from your paper as well is, you know, not just their utilization of different uh, temperatures of water and having this what you what seems to be quite a big range in what they can tolerate, but also the fact that that it says that you know they spend seventy five percent of their time in the day in surface waters, mm-hmm. and then at nighttime they're spending you know forty six percent of their time um, there. So it's a complete difference between mm-hmm. day and night and right. does does this mean that they are diving much deeper during the nighttime because then i can imagine again that would be a massive temperature shift right. that they're also enduring on a daily basis right so many of the billfish species in general you know participate in diurnal migration which is moving from surface waters to deeper waters and mm. they usually do this in regard to feeding um with sailfish, sailfish are kind of unique because as a bill like as one of the billfish species because they are predominantly at the sea surface, um, whereas other billfish species are in deeper waters. Typically, there is a there there is a difference between the surface waters and the waters they're you know going deeper down into, but it's nothing. It I'd say it won't be as drastic um, mm. if that makes sense. Because they are pretty shallow water billfish species. Mm. And um, in terms of migration, then, I guess as well. So they're doing obviously this dial migration during day and night um, for feeding purposes. But in terms of seasonal migration, Mm. are these fishes migrating to different areas for other reasons during the year? Um, That's another uh, 
like topic that definitely needs to be researched more um, as time goes on and satellite tagging will be, you know, like a really good tool to do that. But Mm -hmm. with these Atlantic sailfish, typically, since they are in the tropical and temperate latitudes, um, they don't migrate as far as some other species, if that makes sense, just because of the habitat they're already in is sufficient for mating and food um, and just living overall. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, you spoke about that they have um, a real value for recreational sport fishermen. Um, Is that the only sort of value? Because, you know, I can't personally bring to mind any time that I've seen sailfish, you know, kind of being sold in the supermarkets. And so I'm just wondering, is this because you mentioned that they're being caught at these higher temperatures, therefore they could be more vulnerable to being caught. Mm -hmm. But, you know, does this sport industry have an impact on the species? I imagine you know, it being sport means do they do they release these fish afterwards um, or, or do they not? Yeah. So with sailfish, they're primarily caught for just for fun, for recreational fishing. I mean, you could eat their meat if you'd want, but it's <laughs> not, you know, it's not good um, to yeah. eat. Other billfish species such as swordfish, you know, are caught to be sold um, in the market and such. But sailfish, no, they're primarily just a recreational sport fish. Um, So yeah, with Atlantic sailfish, you do need to release them. There are rules on just in regards to billfish sport fishing. Um, And with sailfish, you do have to release them once you catch them. Um, Mm -hmm. These are, you know, newer rules that have come into play over time, Mm -hmm. because you used to be able to catch a billfish like a sailfish and pull it up on your boat um, and in these competitions, you would measure them. You would bring them back to, you know, you bring them back yeah. to the docks and you would, they they would die because you would weigh the fish then and people would take them home and have them stuffed as trophies and such. But now there's lots of regulations for these species, such as you, you're not allowed to take them out of the water. So you do all your measuring in the water alongside the boat. Um, you have to, you know, remove the hook because you can get into really big trouble if you do take these fish um, outside of the water. Yeah. So dur- during this point, then, when fishermen are catching them, is this when they are were applying the spaghetti tags that were used in your data? Yes. So they catch the fish, and then the fish is alongside the boat, and then they implement the spaghetti tag, um, which is a tiny, the name's pretty accurate, it's a very tiny <laughs> tag that has essentially a number on it. And that number is recorded along with different data, such as the length of the fish, where was the fish caught? Any other information like that? What was the temperature of the water, the temperature of the air? Um, anything like that that the fishermen can, you know, write down about the fish without taking it out of the water. They'll record that information and then they'll release the fish. And so when the fish is caught again um, and someone catches the fish and they see that, oh, this fish is tagged, they'll write down that same tag number where it was found, um, and any of the other conditions as well. And then over time, we can see, okay, well, this fish started here. You know, maybe it's caught la- caught again two years later, and it ended up here. So you can mm-hmm. have a general estimation of where the fish moved, if that makes sense, over time. Yeah. So is it a common occurrence to see the same individual fish being caught more than once over time? Typically... With the bill, so the Billfish Foundation, which is where I've interned and like worked in collaboration with, they've been around for probably about 30 years now. They're really one of the first 
and they are the largest billfish organization in regards to tagging and like research with these fish. Um, So with my data, I had about 10,000 data points. So with that, that means there was 10,000 sailfish that were initially caught once and then caught again. So I had around 10,000 fish over 15 years that were caught again, if that makes sense. So it is kind I don't want to say it's common or normal to keep landing the same fish, but it's definitely, I definitely have a lot of fish that were, you know, recaught. That's, I, I can't believe that. I, I don't know what it's I was amazing. expecting, but that is 10,000 individual fish caught twice. Wow. Yes. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny when you were mentioning about the recreational fishermen, and if I think of any time I've seen a picture of a selfish, it very much is those kind of, those pictures of, you know, these sport fishermen looking very happy with themselves, mm-hmm. holding this colossal fish. And mm-hmm. so I'm just so impressed, given, you know, I've done tagging of, of smaller fish. I've, I've taken fin clips of, you know, bonefish, of trevelli. Mm-hmm. They're a lot smaller, but my word, even just trying to wrangle them was hard enough, let alone a sailfish. Yeah. You know, I'm so impressed that you managed to do this. And I'd love for you to talk through a little bit about how you actually go about subduing a fish Mm -hmm. of that size and actually tagging it. How do you do it? Right. So since these are a recreational fish that are caught for fun, um, they are a sport fish. And a lot of people don't think of fishing as a sport. But it, it really is, it, it, you know, it's exhausting on you, but it's also exhausting on the fish. So with this, you know, someone may be fighting a sailfish for 10 to 15 minutes. Um, and once they, you know, pull it up to the side of the boat, you really don't need to do much with this fish because at that point, the fish is exhausted from, you know, mm-hmm. trying to get away from the line, from yeah. being pulled into the boat. At that point, they're pretty much exhausted. So at that point, you get your little spaghetti tag and there's a tool that the fishermen um, and that we can use where you kind of, you've input the spaghetti tag in this, this tool almost looks like a little harpoon almost. And you input the tag into this little harpoon tool and then you stick it right under the dorsal fin of the sailfish. So that's the top large fin on most fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and you put it in the muscle tissue and the tag is inserted into the fish and that's about it. And you just make sure you take the line and hook out of the fish's mouth and it's good to go and it's just released. But yeah, the majority of the fish that are landed um, are pretty exhausted by the time they get to the boat. So there really isn't, you know, where three people need to be, you know, holding onto the fish um, up against the (laughs) boat and it's thrashing around or anything just because at that point they're just so tired from fighting back. Gosh, I mean, it is... It's not really a nice thing to hear that the fish is yeah. so exhausted by the time it gets to the boat, really. And, you, you know, I think there's going to be some very interesting research coming out in the next few years as well about catch and release fisheries mm-hmm. yes. um, and the impact on survivability. I know that Exeter mm-hmm. University is hoping to embark on a piece of research about that, you know, recreational survivability in, in these recreational uh, catch and release fisheries, because mm-hmm. I think they're actually planning to tag to tag the fish and to see how many survive mm-hmm. because it's right. quite a traumatic experience to go through. You think about, as you've said, the energy expenditure that's involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at least they're not, you know, taking them onto the boat anymore. Um, so at least, you know, they don't have to deal with that exacerbated stress anymore. Right. Yeah, it's definitely 
kind of a controversial topic um, mm-hmm. because, I mean, with what research has shown so far, specifically with billfish species such as sailfish is, okay, when the fish were brought up on the boat, they definitely, and then released, they definitely had a decreased, you know, survival rate. However, now with them, you know, just coming up alongside the boat, being released then and there, they actually have a pretty good um, rate of, you know, survivability um, once they're released. So that's definitely reassuring that with these new rules and regulations over time, that, you know, it, it is actually helping the fish in the long run. I mean, as as you've said, to have 10,000 repeat fish caught, it doesn't speak too poorly for how many, you know, yeah, survived right. it and, and made it to being, you know, re-caught again, yeah. um, which is fascinating. Did you have any data points that have been caught, you know, m- more than once, same fish um, at multiple times? Um, to be honest, I'm not sure. I'm sure there has been, <laughs> um, but... I haven't looked into like my Excel spreadsheet. Um, Don't worry, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see if, if you know one fish had been caught, say, <laughs> ten times, right. just hanging around waiting to be caught again. Yeah, I'm sure it's happened. It happens in ter- like the fishing tournaments and stuff, where one fish will be caught and then it'll it'll unfortunately get caught again. Um, so it's definitely a possibility. Yeah, and Meredith, I mean. We need to know, have you seen a sailfish? <laughs> have you been in the water with one or have you been on the boats and seen them? Yeah, so I actually have. Um, and it's this is definitely what made me, I've always been interested in marine biology and yeah. knew I wanted you know do something with marine biology, but I didn't know what. But I think it was my freshman year um, during college where I had the opportunity to actually go to Costa Rica and we got to go fishing in the Pacific Ocean um, mm-hmm. off the coast of Costa Rica. And we were on a sport fishing boat that was targeting different billfish species. And we actually caught, you know, a couple sailfish. Wow. And this was the first time, you know, I had ever seen a billfish or a sailfish up close <laughs> and personal. And, it, you know, it's one thing looking at a fish or an animal, you know, behind a glass in an aquarium or zoo. But mm-hmm. I was literally you know, leaning over the side of the boat, looking at this probably like six foot long sailfish, like absolutely beautiful. You could see the coloration on it and like how it was sparkling in the water. Um, You could see the mucus that was on the fish, you know, Mm -hmm. that helped it swim faster through the water. And like, it it was that moment that like sparked it in me, just looking at that fish and having that fish look at me with its large eye, like it, I was just like, oh, wow, like, this is Mm -hmm. what I want to do is, you know, work with highly migratory species such as, you know, sailfish or billfish, or even sharks and tuna, Um, just like the whole fisheries world. Because it it was just that was like the pivotal moment for me. And it it was just one of the most like amazing experiences. And that's what actually led me to applying for the internship with the Billfish Foundation, where I then got to do this research. So that moment was really where my whole interest in fisheries really came about. Wow, that's an epic story. <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> I can just see it in my mind sparkling. I'm like, I want to see yeah. one. <laughs> They're beautiful. And so, um, you know, we've, we, we touched on briefly at the beginning a little bit about the possible consequences of what, we, what you've seen in the study with um, them being found in these different temperatures. But, you know, let's let's talk about the potential future of the ocean, not the potential future, mm-hmm. the warming future of the ocean, right. because it's not really a potential anymore. It's a definite. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
obviously it's not just you know about which which temperature that the sailfish is going to prefer to inhabit there are also a lot of you know chemical changes that will mm-hmm. happen to the water that will affect fish could you tell us a little bit more about um you know what will the ocean be like chemically i suppose for for fish in the future yeah for fish in general one thing that I know I mentioned in my paper, um, and specifically with sailfish and billfish species, is that as you know, the temperatures are changing and the ocean chemistry is changing, there will actually be problems with oxygen in the water. And mm. with this, in, in the water, they can create these oxygen, they're called oxygen minimum zones. And in these zones, it essentially is making oxygen less available. And so there will only be oxygen available in these specific specific layers of the ocean or zones. So with this, it'll make fish, it'll make it harder for fish to live in certain areas to move or to migrate or to, you know, to go to deeper depths as well, because in certain areas of the ocean, there just won't be enough oxygen for them in order to respire or breathe. So that's definitely a problem as well. You've spoken about something that I think is just quite often not spoken about enough when we talk about climate change and the impacts mm-hmm. in our oceans um, is like this this deoxygenation essentially mm-hmm. um, as you know and it is a massive problem and it's something that's actually not being spoken about enough um, and sometimes I would argue I would argue well I know that it's you know deoxygenation in our oceans is actually encroaching faster so that it's happening mm-hmm. faster than other say threats. And mm-hmm. we should be seriously concerned with it. But it's just always so underreported. And that always fascinates right. me. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely the main issue with fish, such as sailfish. Um, that will be you know, happening um, with the increase in temperature. But also, as everyone knows, you know, there's this idea of ocean acidification and that the oceans are becoming more acidic. But as I've been taught, it's more of it's what my professors like to call it as ocean debasification because hmm. the oceans aren't becoming more acidic well they're becoming technically more acidic but it's not like they're going to be like an acid that you know <laughs> you think of when you think of acidity hmm. just my professors always tell me just think of it as that its basicness is just decreasing and yes it is going more towards acidity but that's definitely another issue that it will affect fish in the long run and it'll also fit definitely affect all the entire ecosystems um, in the long run as everyone, you know, is thinking about climate change and the increase of carbon dioxide and what's mm. happening to our oceans in regards to um, its change in pH. So, yeah, just off the back of that, you know, as you say, the chemical composition of our oceans is changing. But something I thought was really interesting is an implication, again, of the changing temperature. So you reference Uh, research here that has shown that by 2090, there will be a 39 to 61% decrease of bluefin tuna larval occurrence. Mm -hmm. And so you say that a similar pattern might happen for sailfish because of their biological similarities um, and because of their similar habitat and distribution in surface waters. And, you know, could you explain a little bit about how that might actually uh, affect sailfish? So when we talk about larval occurrence, um, what does that mean? Most fish typically spawn, um, and which is what this means is that they release their eggs into the water column. And once these eggs are released, the male sailfish, um, they'll actually release their sperm over these eggs in the water column, and then the egg will be potentially fertilized. Um, and then from there, 
the egg will develop over time and become a larvae, which is, it's not, I don't want to say it's like a baby fish, but (laughs) it's a more, it's a developing little baby fish, essentially. Yeah. And these larvae will be moved throughout the water with by currents and such. And just due to the increase in temperature, these larvae are more susceptible to mortality just because they are vulnerable and they can't defend themselves. But also they're very delicate as well. Mm -hmm. So a change in the temperature or a change in another factor like we were talking about acidity or pH or salinity or any other factor like that, that may have an impact on these larval fish being able to survive. So with the increase in temperature, this could potentially affect the larval being able to survive. And if the if the babies can't survive, then, well, they're not going to grow up and the populations are going to decrease. So that's definitely a pattern that is beginning to be seen. Um, and then, like I mentioned, with that tuna, something similar could happen to with the sailfish larvae or other billfish species, um, just because they are both highly migratory species and they, you know, live in the same habitat. They're just very similar in that aspect. It's a, it's quite a big stat to say that, you know, 39, 61% um, by 2090, a decrease in, in larval occurrence. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. what are the dangers of extrapolating statistics like this into the future, do you think? I mean, it's definitely hard to predict, we you know, what's going to happen that far in advance. And I would think it's definitely hard to predict because this research that we're doing now in regards to like anything fisheries is relatively new. In the Mm -hmm. past, there hasn't been a lot of research on movements of fish or, you know, how often they reproduce or, you know, how, how do their, how do the baby fish, you know, survive? Like, are, are they as delicate as we think? So there's definitely more research that needs to be put into this, you know, so that we can try and get a better idea of, okay, is this actually going to happen or not? So hopefully within, you know, that, you know, as we continue on with research, we'll get a better idea of how, you know, different species and fish um, will be affected by changes in the environment. Mm. But yeah, it's definitely, you definitely don't want to over predict or under predict anything, but it can be tricky since we don't have much of a baseline from the past. Yeah, for sure. I mean, any kind of modeling, it's the danger, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, taking a set of data and... You know, there are so many other different factors are, that, that that are at play. Um, and kind of speaking on the topic of variables, actually, I had a bit of a question, which was, mm-hmm. you know, the variable that you were looking at here um, was temperature. Right. Were there any other ve- variables that you were accounting for in the study that could have potentially influenced the number of catches? For example, were there more boats that went out mm-hmm. on one year? Were there more fishermen? From this, the only thing, so I... The data that I was provided essentially was the specimen number or the data number, whatever the sail, like the sailfish tag number, essentially. I mm-hmm. got their latitude and longitude. I got some, the pro, well, the problem, one of the problems with the data that I received is that all the data is from fishermen. So it's not scientists going out and collecting the data. So some things are consistent and some things aren't consistent. So some fish would have a length or an estimated <laughs> weight, but some would just have, okay, we caught a sailfish at this location and that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So the majority of the data I had was basically just the location, length, possible weight of the fish. 
um, since it wasn't scientists going out and collecting the data and since we weren't using satellite tags or anything. And then I got that temperature data from um, NOAA and mm. corresponded the temperature from the time and day with each sailfish. So I didn't look at any other factors. Ideally, I would, but because we were using these spaghetti tags, you know, we weren't, we didn't have, you know, access to, okay, what depth did these fish go at? When did these fish, you know, go to that certain depth? Or when did they move here? Or, you know, what was the specific water temp or anything with that? So essentially what I was just working with was the latitude and longitude they were found Mm. at, and then the temperature that I then got from NOAA. So for a potential future study, say, um, Mm -hmm. potentially, you know, using a different kind of tag that could record depth or, um, you know, actually temperature where the fish is, Mm -hmm. do you think there would be scope for these same recreational fishermen to um, assist with employing those sorts of tags? Or do you think it would have to be a scientist-led operation? Um, I would probably say it would have to be a scientist-led operation, just because with satellite tags, they can sometimes be tricky to get onto an animal, um, especially the larger satellite (laughs) tags. Um, Like even when talking to my professor about him tagging, trying to tag albacore tuna, he was having problems with keeping the tag inserted into the muscle tissue of this fish. Um, So even scientists are having a problem, you know, with these (laughs) electronic tags. So I definitely say probably a scientist would have to do it just because they'd have a better understanding of where to specifically put the tag. And also these tags are very expensive as well. Yes. So Mm. it would be hard for, you know, these recreational fishermen to get these tags on their own, because if anything, they would have to be given them by scientists. They are so expensive, these tags. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've, I've, I was working with somebody um, when I was working as a research assistant and they they explained to me just how expensive these whale shark tags they were mm-hmm. using were. And I mean, it was like thousands of pounds yep. per tag. But, you know, one thing that I love about this study is is a fantastic example of kind of citizen science in a way of like yeah. utilizing these fishermen as a way to gather important data, because that Mm -hmm. is our constant battle as scientists is to have the time, the money and the resources Mm -hmm. to go out there and actually collect meaningful data that is both temporally and spatially representative. And Mm -hmm. this data set is huge. And you've only been able to achieve that by building this relationship with these fishermen. And it's wonderful Mm -hmm. that so many of them have been taken part, even though there's obviously sampling um, <laughs> error or there's you know there's there's a difference between those that might give you you know more data than others but it's mm-hmm. just brilliant and just goes to show that there are ways that we can utilize people that aren't scientists to actually help us gather really important data and, and like your research has shown we now have a better understanding of you know where these sailfish are being found at what temperatures they're being caught and what this you know rising sea surface temperatures might ultimately mean for the species mm. right it, I, I mean it really is an interesting one isn't it because you know i think there are a lot of people in the marine science community who would probably say you know catch and release isn't a great thing but i guess this is one of those cases where we're seeing catch and release like the fishermen are already going to do it Mm. um and so it's kind of you know taking that silver lining Mm. um from something that as you say is quite controversial 
And yeah, it really is a fantastic example of um, fishermen collecting very, very valuable data. So yeah, absolutely brilliant. Um, so just let's come on now to, uh, in the last few minutes, uh, a little bit more about you and, and your future plans. Um, so you've obviously finished the study. Um, you're, you're still studying your undergraduate mm. degree. Yes. Where, where do you see yourself heading next? So I definitely want to continue with research. Um, I'm still doing research currently. I got to help my professor last semester with some albacore tuna depth distribution Amazing. data. Um, we ultimately couldn't end up doing anything um, with that data because <laughs> the electronic tag didn't collect everything we needed, ultimately, because <laughs> technology, technology, of course. <laughs> and my professor is still trying to figure out how to tag albacore tuna because they are a smaller tuna species. So there has been some problem trying to tag these fish. So that's something, you know, sometimes science doesn't end, you know, with a, like a conclusion or a result, a lot of mm -hmm. stuff, a lot of, a lot of research. I don't want, it doesn't, it doesn't fail, but a lot of research, there isn't enough data to support it fully to have, you know, published or released to the public or anything like that. And that's definitely something I've learned a lot um, over the past couple of years as well. But, you know, I definitely want to remain in research I graduate um, this December, so I'm currently looking into grad schools in the U.S. So I want to get my master's degree and hopefully get my Ph.D. Um, at one point, too, because I would, I would love to be able to have it my own lab, whether that be at a university or with a different organization, and be able to have like a fisheries lab um, and to run something like that and continue doing research and remain in academia you know, to try and make fisheries more sustainable and, you know, so that we can learn more about fish because there's a lot that isn't known about, you know, different species of fish and where they live, what they eat when they reproduce or anything like that. And, you know, we really need to know that information, you know, as we head into the future. Absolutely. And I just am so inspired by you, Meredith, you know, you're doing your undergraduate and you've You've done something that a lot of people don't get around to doing until they've completed their masters and finished mm -hmm. their masters. You know, you've you've published research, you've gone out there, you've found opportunities, and it's just so inspiring to hear that, you know, you've had a positive experience so far and that you've got your eyes set on having your own lab one day and like mm -hmm. truly do wish like I really hope that happens for you and it's just so Thank inspiring you. to to hear you speak so passionately about it. And I guess mm -hmm. my question as well, you know, is how has it been, you know, being a a woman and a lead author? How was mm -hmm. your experience? Did you have a positive experience with kind of, you know, leading the charge with that? And, you know, you had a couple of co-authors. Um, so, yeah, if you could talk us through what was your experience like actually being a, f a first author of a paper? It, it's I never thought it would happen. It's very crazy. But I've been very, I feel very lucky. Um, to have, you know, different opportunities within the marine biology field in general. Um, and with growing up in Florida, I've been surrounded about, su surrounded around water a lot. Um, so as a, a, publishing my paper, and especially as a female, it, I mean, I personally didn't, I don't want to say I had any issues, but I really didn't. All of my, you know, everyone I worked with on this project um, at the Billfish Foundation, and also at my university who helped me, you know, draft up 
and draft up my paper and, you know, go through my research with me and make sure I was doing everything correctly. They were all so supportive of me and, you know, really did believe in me. So my experience was just really great. I've had just any, with anything in the field, I've just felt very supported by different internships I've had and with different professors and such. Um, The university I currently go to is actually 70% female um, and then 30% male. So the majority of people at my university are actually like the students are women. Um, So the majority of my classes, they're all women and, you know, maybe two, two men in the classes. And it's, it's really cool because, you know, we can bounce ideas off of each other and it, it shows, you know, how far we've come in such a short amount of time. Um, And it's really amazing to be, you know, surrounded by that and, you know, feel supported by everyone around me. So I'm very lucky to have experienced that. Yeah, it's it's really exciting to hear that, you know, you're seeing such a large proportion of your cohorts being female. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's quite funny because during my undergraduate degree, I actually, um, there, there were, I think, more girls than boys on my course. Mm-hmm. However, where we saw the discrepancy was in the higher levels with our mm-hmm. lecturers, where right. the majority of the people in the actual positions of power, so to speak, were men. Right. And so I remember what I had I struggled with particularly as an undergraduate was finding female role models um whereas as you say having female peers was you know that was really exciting to see and I was I felt really privileged to be in a position where you know a lot of my cohorts and my peers were women but um so I think what will be really interesting and as you say we've come so far in such a short amount of time is to see you know how in the next 10 years 20 years it progresses mm-hmm. and you know people who are, I hate to say this, of our generation, you know, graduated within the last five, 10 years, as they move forward into the next phase of their life, because we've actually had um, some mamas in ocean science on our podcast Mm -hmm. as well, um, who are still doing research. And that is really, really great to see, because what we've seen in the past is women having to make this choice, uh, either consciously or having some kind of unconscious bias against them. So, um, you know, now that we're seeing classes such as yours with so many women there, it would be really interesting to see, you know, how many make it um, into, you know, the more senior positions. And that's what we really, really hope to see going forwards as well. Right. You yeah. know, I've, I've definitely had, I've had female professors that, you know, have their PhD in a marine bio topic. Um, another internship I, I'm actually going back to the summer with that I had last summer is at Moat Marine Laboratory. Um, <gasps> you lucky thing. Yeah, it's actually, Moat is in my hometown. So I've grown up there and I've got to grown up, you know, going to Moat. Um, and, you know, and now I'm wor- working as an intern there. And my one boss uh, who actually leads the lab I am in is a woman. And she is an older woman too, um, which is really amazing to see that, you know, how far she got during her time, which is amazing. And she's definitely a role model for me um, as well. So it's really cool to see, you know, what even my peers are doing or, you know, any other people that I know. So it's, it's just really cool to see, you know, what people are doing. No, it's so lovely. It really is so lovely. Mads, did you have any last words you wanted to throw in there? No, no, I was actually going to ask Meredith for uh, <laughs> any, any last words. Meredith, we always uh, ask, our, ask our podcast to leave us, our podcasts, our podcast guests, <laughs> sorry, um, to leave us with any final words of wit or wisdom or wit and wisdom, uh, if you prefer. 
Um, I would just say if there's any women out there or even young girls that are listening, if whatever you want to do, you can do um, if you put your mind to it. Um, if you want to go into marine biology or just even whatever career you want to go into, try and find any opportunity that, you know, maybe maybe semi-relevant to it, you know, try to learn from that experience. And it, it will really help you in the long run because you'll learn a lot from it. Like I've learned a lot from my internship with the Billfish Foundation, and it's gotten me so much farther um, within my university and has advanced my career so much. So if you just have something to put up, if you if you want to do something, just put your mind to it. Try and find an opportunity, and you know, just give it a, give it your all. Boom, boom, bash, <laughs> bosh. So good. <laughs> and Meredith, where can people find you if they want to follow along? Are you on socials? Yes. So you can follow me on Instagram and my Instagram handle is marine.meredith. So if you just type that in, I'll come on up. <laughs> I am typing it in as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely love it. Well, Meredith, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on today to talk about the Atlantic sailfish. Um, and, you know, you're at the very beginning of your career and we would love to see what you do next and have you back on to discuss your next piece of research. Thank you so much. It was, it was awesome to be a part of this. You have been listening to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, brought to you by Women in Ocean Science and hosted by me, Matt Sinclair and Charlie Young. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to give it a share and you can find us on socials as at Women in Ocean Science. We are a non-profit organisation, so every like, comment, share and bit of support goes such a long way in helping us to elevate the voices of the women working to protect the ocean and helps us to continue on our mission. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and I hope you have an awesome week. <laughs> <laughs>